1: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. It's been just over a year since California essentially reopened. The state made masking optional, schools and businesses dropped restrictions. In that time, we've endured surges and virus mutations that made COVID more contagious than ever, but thankfully deaths remained relatively low. Now it seems almost everyone who avoided infection in the pandemic's first two years has been getting it. As we prepare to gather for the July 4th holiday, UCSF's Dr. Peter Chin Hong joins us to answer your questions about testing, treatments, and vaccine effectiveness. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. An advisory committee to the FDA has recommended that COVID vaccines be redesigned to better protect against the highly contagious Omicron subvariants. Coronavirus cases have now reached the 10 million mark in California since the pandemic began, though that number is widely considered an undercount. And case rates here remain high. Joining me now is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco Medical Center. Always appreciate having you on, Dr. Chen Hong.
2: Always a pleasure, Mina. Thanks for having me on. And it's great to be in studio.
1: Yeah. Thank you for coming into studio. Um, first, what can you tell us about this advisory committee to the FDA? The main reasons behind this advisory panel's vote yesterday to recommend these reformulated boosters to better fight against Omicron's offshoots.
2: Well, Mina, the main rationale is that uh, even though the vaccines are really spectacular, uh, particularly if you remind the immune system at preventing serious disease, hospitalization and death, they've been coming up short lately at preventing infection. And as everyone who's listening knows, uh, just getting a breakthrough infection, even if it's mild, means that it's terribly disruptive to your life, to society. You're taken out of school or work. Somebody might have to take time off to take care of you. And uh, if we can prevent that by updating the virus to make the spikes on the spike protein, uh, on the spike proteins look a little bit more like what's going around now, that might not just prevent serious disease, but also prevent infection.
1: So if people are weighing when to get their next booster, should they wait for this reformulated vaccine? How soon could it be available since this was a recommendation?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So my advice is really to go out and get your booster if you're eligible and not to wait. And the reason is as follows. First of all, Uh, There's still debate as to what the nature of the cocktail would be like for the updated variant uh, booster. Uh, Is it going to be uh, the original plus uh, Omicron BA-1 that we saw in January? Is it going to be the original plus the new kids on the block, BA-4 and BA-5? Uh, The Moderna and Pfizer companies were banking on the fact that it would have been the original uh, Omicron variant, Plus the uh, Wuhan variant, because they already started making them. If that were the case, that would be available very soon, maybe at the end of summer. But many people on the FDA advisory board think, why go to the past? I mean, BA1 is such old news now. We should be looking to the future. And right now, the future is all about BA4 and BA5. If we waited uh, to include those two, just the fact of producing them means that we're looking at the end of October, early November.
1: I see. And it's really the winter surge that they're worried about. So it would be almost like right under the wire. (laughs) Yeah. And
2: and so time and time again, we've already been behind the eighth ball with this COVID virus. And we are, for one, saying, well, let's just be a little bit avant-garde and think about the now and future rather than, you know, five million years ago in COVID years.
1: That said, though, I almost wonder, as we can see, the mutations are happening all the time could the va- vaccine that gets developed that includes BA4 and BA5 be almost outdated by the winter surge?
2: That is definitely a possibility. Um, but maybe the next uh, sublineage. lineage it seems to be all flavors of Omicron now, but maybe we might get a pi or a rho or a sigma. It's always going to be a calculated guess. Um, but again, I want to scope back to the 30,000-foot view, which is, Regardless of what we do, we're still doing pretty well at keeping the most vulnerable people away from the ICU, away from dying, if they get up to date on their vaccines.
1: And so also, big news has been that COVID vaccines are finally available for kids under five in the U.S. What uh, would you like parents to know about the differences between the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine for kids under five?
2: Yeah, so those are all great questions. Um, The biggest difference between Moderna and Pfizer for parents uh, to know is that Moderna is a higher dose, so you just need two doses uh, spread apart by four weeks so you can get done faster. Pfizer is a smaller dose, uh, Moderna quarter of the adult dose, Pfizer one-tenth of the adult dose, so you need three shots spread across 11 weeks to complete the series. So If you want to do it fast, go for Moderna, you might get a little bit more side effects, nothing like even older kids or adolescents, um, because it's still a smaller dose, but more than the Pfizer dose. Uh, And the Pfizer, if you're not in a rush, uh, the three doses spread across 11 weeks uh, is another option. But, you know, just like we say for adults, uh, it depends on what's being stocked at the particular location you're going to. And I would just... You know, if I had an under five-year-old, I'd probably get what was uh, uh, soonest available. Although if I were planning a trip to visit grandma or grandpa at the end of summer and I wanted to be done or have more confidence earlier, I'd probably get Moderna.
1: I see. So there have been some differences reported in terms of vaccine efficacy. For example, there have been reports that Pfizer's vaccine reduced the risk of symptomatic infection by 80 percent in kids between six months and four. Moderna's was like 37 percent in kids two to five. But at the same time, we're being told that these aren't necessarily apples to apples comparisons for for parents who are wanting to get the most effective ones. What would you recommend if it's not available? Would you just say, again, just go ahead and get what's available, that that it's really, they're both effective and it's really, these numbers (laughs) uh, can be hard to compare.
2: Yeah, the numbers are super hard to interpret. And the reason is a couple of reasons. First of all, they were done at different times. So um, you know Pfizer actually went back to the drawing board because they were banking on a two-dose series and then the two doses didn't look good enough. Then they added the third, and then Moderna started a little bit later, but then got done earlier. Uh, so you would say that Pfizer probably represents, uh, uh, you know, some of the later subvariants. Uh, Moderna a little bit earlier. So it's hard to compare the two. Plus, the Pfizer eighty percent is based on a smaller number of people, which is really statistically unsound. So at the end of the day, you can't really compare the eighty to the fifty percent. Uh, and also, no vaccine really works well against symptomatic infection, even in adults. Um, now, most uh, prominently, I think we are uh, uh, expecting that they will do exceptionally well at preventing the most serious outcomes in these kids.
1: And even with the recommendation for reformulated vaccines, these are still really good
2: ones to give to children. Exactly. Because we can't predict uh, which kids are going to be hospitalized. I was really astonished to find out that during Omicron, more kids under five were hospitalized than those over five, and that's because they were not eligible for vaccines. And Mm -hmm. of the kids who were hospitalized under five, 50% of them had absolutely no risk factors that we would think about, like congenital heart disease or neurological disease, um, to really predict why they were being hospitalized. Suffice to say, we can't look at a kid and and use some magic... uh, you know, uh, lenses to say this kid is going to be hospitalized, so I I might as well uh, really make sure they get vaccinated or this kid is definitely going to be safe.
1: Uh, Certainly a thought for parents who may be on the fence about vaccinating their kids under five. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Infectious Disease Specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And your listeners are invited to join the conversation with your COVID questions or your thoughts on the latest pandemic developments. You can email them to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call with them at 866-733-6786. Again, your questions to 866-733-6786. Dr. Chen hong while we're on the subject of vaccines, there was another announcement yesterday from federal officials, and this was actually related to monkeypox, that clinics nationwide will begin offering vaccinations against monkeypox, essentially to anyone who may have been exposed to the virus. We're at Over 300 cases, as I understand it, in 27 states now, maybe some 50 or so in California. The the case numbers are going up. How worried should we be about our ability to contain monkeypox?
2: I think we're probably not going to contain monkeypox anymore, but it's still not going to be a threat to the general population. I'll explain that apparent contradiction in a few minutes. So the reason why I don't think we can contain it uh, doesn't mean that I'm pessimistic and that we'll all uh, you know, be afflicted with monkeypox. It means that it may probably become endemic. Um, and it means that it would be one of the things we think about when somebody comes into clinic with a rash or an ulcer, particularly in the genital area. Um, and it probably won't go away. And the reason why I don't think we can make it go away anymore is because uh, we're detecting it now in the wastewater in Northern California um, you know, we are not using enough diagnostic tests, so we can't keep the people who have infection away from the people who don't have infection. Um, I and So I think that, you know, if we deploy vaccines very, very efficiently, which I think the feds are hoping to do, we might be able to nip it in the bud. But again, it's all over the world right now. Um, it's very hidden because you can't really tell immediately there's a very, very long incubation period. And um, it prevents very, very subtly. It's not like when you Google monkeypox and you see these dramatic images of that boy that they always show in the pictures with the boils on the arm. Mm -hmm. It looks very, very subtle and it could be missed. People might think it's a staph infection or a boil or even like herpes. Um, But um, again... Uh, I think with a combination of strategies, we might be able to do something about it. But again, with a lot of pride uh, weeks or weekends already passed, uh, we might have missed our golden opportunity.
1: You you did say, though, that we should focus on silver linings related to this infection. What is that? Yeah, yeah. So there
2: actually are a lot of silver linings. Um, And first of all, it's not probably going to be at risk to the general population. It hasn't killed anyone. It's not a deadly disease. Um, in our country, we had a, uh, a lot of experience uh, before in the early 2000, 2003, with the monkeypox outbreak in, in pet owners of prairie dogs that were housed next to these rats that had monkeypox and the pet owners got it and nobody died. Uh, nobody has died, as far as I know, in more, more than 4,000 people around the world who have gotten it so far. Um, other silver linings, we have a vaccine. It's very good. Um, Geneos is the one uh, that the feds are distributing now. We have therapeutics. There's immune immune globulin. We haven't had to use therapeutics. So lots of silver linings.
1: Well, thanks for for touching on that with us. We're talking about COVID this hour, uh, and we're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong. And you can share your questions or your experiences with COVID these days. By posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, emailing forum at kqed.org, or calling us 866 733 6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. The Supreme Court, in addition to taking away Americans' constitutional right to an abortion, has struck down gun regulations, broadly expanded religious rights. We'll break down the most significant rulings, and we want to hear from you what do the opinions from this ground-shifting term represent to you. You can leave a voicemail by calling 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, an infectious disease specialist at UC San Francisco Medical Center, and taking your COVID questions at 866-733-6786 from Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and from your emails to forum at org. And let me go to Amelia in Santa Rosa. Hi, Amelia. Hi,
0: good morning. Um, I... Well, my I have a four-year-old daughter, and she currently has COVID. Huh. Um, I know <laughs> we've made it like this whole time without it. Um, sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you are not alone. It feels like so many people have avoided it in the previous couple of years, and, and have it now.
0: Um, I'm a teacher, and so I've I've been on that side of this whole pandemic. I was pregnant all last year. Um, I was thankful to be boosted in my third trimester, so I'm hoping that my now four month old son at least has a teeny bit of protection. Um, so she's four. We had an appointment for her vaccine this Saturday, but then she got COVID, so we couldn't couldn't go to that appointment. Um, but my question is: now that she has had COVID or is having COVID, when is um, she able to get? A vaccine. How long does she have to wait before she actually can get a vaccine?
1: Amelia, thanks, Dr. Chen Hong.
2: Hi, Amelia, and so sorry about your daughter, and 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 uh, kudos to you for being a teacher during all of these trying times. I really have so much admiration for you. Uh, First of all, uh, in terms of when it's safe to get a vaccine after having had COVID, um, you know, now experts believe that you can get the vaccine as soon as you feel better. So there's nothing uh, keeping you away from making that appointment. As long as your daughter is feeling better, you're not going to feel uh, she's not going to get much worse uh, if she's getting the vaccine after then. But immunologically speaking, um, in the old days, you would say three months would probably be a good window period for the maximum time you can wait. But now with the new variants of foot, I think people are saying uh, four weeks to six weeks would be sort of like the, you know, the, the max that I would wait before, um, you know, not getting the, the vaccine or starting the vaccine series.
1: Well, Amelia, thanks. And I hope your four-year-old feels better soon. Let me go to Charlie next. Hi, Charlie.
0: Uh, Good morning. Thank you for this update on COVID. I really appreciate it. I'm 71, and I have a high risk, specifically, mitochondrial disease with dysautonomia, because the doctor would need to know that. I um, am wondering if there's anything I could do. I've been not going out so much. I've been avoiding crowds. And I have been double masking with uh, N95 and uh, a, a blue mask on top of that to protect others. But I am worried that my vaccines may be wearing. And uh, I'm very high risk, as the doctor would understand from my diagnosis.
1: Hmm. Well, Charlie, Thanks. Anything more that Charlie can do, It sounds like he's already doing a lot.
2: yeah, Charlie, you're doing a lot already. um I, I would say like some of the other things you can talk to a healthcare professional about, although I'm sure you have already is just you know getting a good sense of how you responded to the vaccine. I assume you have. um and if so, you add one, you know if if you can if if you know, as an immunocompromised person uh, potentially to what the general population guidelines are. for example, If those over 50 are eligible for two additional shots, you could be eligible for three additional. So uh, I would say, you know, after, uh, you know, are you up to date on that? In that respect, I assume you are. And then number two, if you're not having or haven't really taken to the vaccines, I think what a lot of people haven't explored as fully still is the idea of using long-acting monoclonal antibodies like Evusheld. Uh, I had a patient recently, for example, who... um, was also very very um, worried about moving going out into the world, particularly around with high circulating virus and um, uh, immune compromise as well. Ended up getting every shelled and feels a lot better about that because you know at least that uh, that those pre-made antibodies would be circulating around. And again, nothing is going to be uh, zero risk or one risk. Uh, so the other aspect, of course, is to make sure that you know how you're going to uh, be. Where are you going to get your Paxlovid from in the eventuality that you would get uh infected? Who's going to prescribe it to you? What are your drug-drug interactions? And which drugstore close to you will have it?
1: Well, Charlie, thank you for the question. And it's also making me think about, for people who don't want to contribute to other people's risk, what should they do with what feels like right now the omnipresence of these Omicron subvariants.
2: <laughs> no, it's it's very, very hard, uh Mina. And I think, you know, we we do the best that we can. It sounds really simplistic to say, but again, we have multiple tools, and the more tools you deploy, the the lower the risk, but you're not going to eliminate the risk to zero. Uh take take case in point is, for example, the first call, Amelia. Uh, her daughter is ill. And even though Amelia has taken all the precautions in the world, what I've seen in many of my colleagues, even at work in the hospital is that they became infected because they had to take care of their, their kids uh, because you can't ask the four-year-old to isolate and just put some food under the door. Uh, you have to actively take care of that kid. And that's how a lot of people are becoming infected, even though they've taken so many precautions during the year. So I think that, you know, again, you try to do the best you can and, Again, we have more tools than a year ago when we tried to reopen. And that's really the idea that if somebody was ill, there are a lot of other things that we can do to keep them away from the hospital now, not just Paxlovid or monoclonal antibodies, but even alternatives like three days of remdesivir or when you get into the hospital, we're much better at keeping you away from the ICU. So there are a lot of things that we've been better at in the last two and a half years.
1: Well, let me go next to caller Steve in San Jose. Hi, Steve.
0: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, My question is more about the vaccines. You know, we heard a lot about the potential twindemic the last couple of winters with flu and with COVID, and it didn't really pan out, perhaps because, you know, there was
2: masks and, you know, we weren't fully reopened. Uh, Curious what your perspectives on that for this upcoming winter, and do you foresee... Us rapidly moving to an mRNA-style flu vaccine at some point here, mm. just given the uh, rapidly changing uh, virus.
1: Mm, Steve, thanks.
2: Both on the flu and COVID. Side. Yeah, that's a great question from Steve. Um, I don't see any changes in the flu vaccine yet for this moment, but I do see a way a change in the potential administration of the flu vaccine. And for Moderna, for example, is combining a flu vaccine. With a COVID booster in one shot. So, like, you don't have to do to get two shots. I think that will be great. So, you see more combination vaccines. Um, uh, And the flu season is going to come back. We're already seeing upticks in the southern hemisphere this year, uh, higher than the last two years. I know we've cried well for the last two years, but then people stayed um, still because of the uh, variants that were circulating at the time. Uh, Delta and then Omicron the following year, it kept our flu numbers down. But right now, I think with everyone moving and what we're seeing in Australia, Brazil, etc., we're expecting uh, a regular flu season, which in its normal terms will kill 30,000 people. In a bad flu season, you're talking about sixty to 80,000 deaths, uh, which, which are still lower than the number of COVID deaths we have daily right now, uh, about 300.
1: Well, Anna writes, "If one had COVID at the end of May in the Bay Area, what's your best guess about which variant it was? Wondering if I had Omicron four or 5, four or five, meaning BA four or BA five, and am thus a little more protected going into the summer."
2: No, I think that's a great question. I think at the end of May, BA four and BA five are really um, increasing very, very rapidly. Uh, it's the rap- most rapidly uh, increasing variant, which which means that at the end of May. Uh, we had some data that the circulating variant uh, more than 60% chance was a variant of BA2 which is had the very uh, memorable name of BA2.12.1 which first started off in the central new york and then spread to the rest of the country so unfortunately probably was not BA4 BA5
1: We're talking with Dr. Peter Hong, Infectious Disease Specialist at UC San Francisco Medical Center, and taking your questions about COVID as California's high case rates remain ahead of the July 4th holiday, and I'm sure people want to protect themselves and others as well. There's a question on testing here. The sister writes, can someone who tests negative with a home test still be contagious? I think this is a really interesting question because for a lot of people, we've been hearing that antigen tests are not quite as effective against these Omicron subvariants, meaning they're not quite as good at detecting them. And we've seen reports of vaccinated people who test negative even when they have symptoms and then test positive. So how should we view the results of, of one negative antigen test if we're trying to you know, protect people, make decisions about whether we should be indoors with others, and so
2: on? Um, I, I I love that question. First of all, in general, the Rapid test is a good measure of transmissibility, but again, it's not, uh, you know, a hundred percent great at it. And let's just get back to the basic principles. A rapid antigen test, you need more than a hundred thousand uh, virus to be positive. A PCR test, you need you just need a few, even less than ten. So the point is that the reason why vaccinated people feel sicker earlier, many people believe, is that you already have these circulating immune cells ready to pounce, um, and they. They react even when a few viruses there before the antigen test turns positive. But if you're just like going for a quick event, you rapidly screen negative and then you go into the event and you leave, chances are you're not going to transmit. But if you're staying in the event or it's a family reunion that lasts for a day or a weekend, you can imagine a situation where you're... You're converting after that initial uh, negative test uh, while the, as the virus reproduces enough to reach that over 100,000 mark.
1: Mm. So then you should, if you're going to spend multiple days, maybe test, test more daily. than once. Yeah. Yes, test daily. I see. Okay. Um, we're also getting a lot of questions about timing of. Shots. So I want to ask you a couple of of those. For example, this listener wants to know, can you talk a little bit about the timing of a booster for kids over five? My vaccinated six year old child is outside at local camps all summer. And I'm contemplating waiting until closer to the start of school for her booster. What does the evidence say about booster timing?
2: Yeah. So the what was studied in the data for kids is really at a five-month mark. Uh, so you can get a booster at five months or so, but there's no science around why five months is chosen. The idea is that you remind the immune system you know, a few months after the original series. And that's how vaccines work best. They work that way in hepatitis B and human papillomavirus. And many kids have received measles, mumps, and rubella. It's the same principle. So you know, that's the that's the idea. Uh, and how you interpret it could be based on what your timing is. And if you think, you know, rightly so, that the highest risk and you want to optimize antibodies are around school time and there's not going to be a lot of vacationing with lots of crowds during the summer. You can wait two weeks before school because it's still in that window period for really reminding the immune system. For the future, again, you're boosting for the future, not necessarily as much for the present, which is because these vaccines are not going to be as great long term for, um, again, breakthrough infection, but great at the most serious outcomes.
1: Let me go to Mary in San Francisco. Hi, Mary. Hello. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I have a daughter who's home uh,
0: with a five day old baby. Uh, she's nursing the baby. She has covid she also
3: had it while she was pregnant, so we're hoping the baby has some immunity from that event. Um, she is very worried because her she has a dry
0: cough and she's not sure if it's a symptom of covid or maybe from wearing her mask for so many days for so long it's irritating her throat but um so she's still wearing the mask um double masking around the baby and all day and very worried about transmitting COVID to the baby. What other precautions besides a mask might there be?
2: Thanks, Mary. That's a great question, Mary. Um, You know, I maybe I wonder if your daughter can just get a PCR test because if that PCR is negative, I would feel very confident that that dry cough, at least at this point, is not going to be uh, COVID. Um, But, of course, repeating the rapid angina test at least... Three times over three days might also give you the same uh, information, but it'll be, you know, it'll take a longer time. So that probably would be my best advice, because the other things, um, you know, I'm not sure you'd need them if if, if it's not um, COVID. But that said, there are also other infections that a mom who's coughing can spread to the baby. Um, but again, many of those if in a young baby under six months old would have uh, had, you know, would be a the antibodies from the mom would have gone to the baby to pr- help protect the baby in that early time period. So, so those are, you know, some of the considerations. You know, every th- all the usual um, other things, washing hands will be important for lots of other viruses, et cetera, um, apart from the mask. But I think um, ruling out COVID by using a sensitive test might be the best first step.
1: When was the last time she tested, Mary? Do you know? She did, she did get a positive
0: PCR test. Mm. three days ago
2: three days ago. Oh, ago. okay I, I misunderstood that so if she had a positive pcr three days ago um i think you know just wearing them, doing the best that you can the baby probably already has um positive antibodies from uh the the, the time during the time of pregnancy and um it, you know um uh waiting and and checking rapid tests until they turn negative if they're negative uh, i would feel confident that there's not going to be no more transmission
1: great to hear that she likely passed on the antibodies but oh five day old newborn i can only imagine mary thanks for the call let me go to steven in berkeley hi steven
0: hi thanks for a great COVID update program um My wife and I are both in our late 60s, both vaccinated and boosted, and we contracted uh, COVID about a month ago. And both had, uh, at the same time, pretty serious flu symptoms. On day three, she opted for Paxlovid, and I opted for betulovimab infusion. And it turned out that she remained positive until day 15, and I was positive only till day seven. And I'm
2: wondering if the doctor has seen this in the field, that kind of difference.
1: Thanks, Stephen. I don't know that I've heard of LavaBid or if I'm saying that
2: right. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I think um, that's a great question from Stephen. So what Stephen is illustrating is that there are different ways to treat people who have become acutely ill to keep them away from the hospital. One is the drug we've heard about, Paxlovid, which shuts down the virus factory by it's an antiviral drug. And then the other is um, monoclonal antibodies, which uh, the beptelovibumab is a lily product, Kind of like Regeneron, but updated to be better against Omicron flavors. So it's pre-made antibodies that just neutralize the virus, so it acts really faster. But it's uh, harder to give because you need to get an IV. You need to uh, get an IV. It, you need an hour of observation, um, and you need to, a place to go to. Uh, so what he's illustrating two different ways of treating it. Um, the Paxlovid, of course, is associated with people with rebound. Um, and um but not most people, I would say probably twenty percent of people, although it seems that when you talk to everybody, everybody seems to have had it but i 've seen a lot of successes from it as well, just very portable um and the the monocle and antibodies also have a lot of use, uh, but it 's harder to give, and that 's the main difference
1: well well, thanks for for that question and for letting us know about it Stephen and we're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong of UCSF Medical Center an infectious disease specialist there doing a COVID update taking your questions hearing your experiences email forum at kqed.org post thoughts and questions on Twitter Facebook or Instagram at kqed forum call us 866-733-6786 more after the break I'm Mina Kim This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Does it feel like everyone you know these days has or has had COVID? UCSF's Dr. Peter Chin Hong is here to answer your questions about the virus, variants, prevention, treatment, and more. And you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by calling us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Let me go to Stuart in San Francisco. Hi, Stuart.
2: Hi. Hi. Dr. Chin Hong, thanks for being such a sane and also good-natured voice during this pandemic. Um, Could you respond to what your UCSF colleague, Dr. Monica Gandhi, wrote uh, just a few days ago in the San Francisco Chronicle when she said, we should reassure the public that long COVID can be prevented through vaccination. Um, Her comments seem to contradict what you and others like Dr. Bob Wachter have said about the risks of long COVID. And just recently, we've been hearing that reinfection with COVID can lead to even higher risk of long COVID. So could you just help us make mm-hmm. sense of these kind of contradictory opinions? Stuart,
1: thanks. Dr. Chin Hong?
2: Thanks, Stuart, for your kind words. And it's really been an honor and privilege, really, to be able to speak to the community during COVID. So I appreciate your comments. Uh, regarding risk, I think it's really, really hard. Um, and um, my view on, on all of it, uh, and let's just pick on long COVID for now, is that it Again, just like the the idea of catching COVID, it's not really um, uh, bipolar, you know, it's not like zero one, but in terms of reducing risk. And I can't say that you won't get COVID, uh, long COVID by being vaccinated in the same way that I can't say that uh, you won't get uh, reinf- uh, reinfection, even if you've gotten recent COVID. There's just a lower risk of it uh, rather than saying there's absolutely no risk. So I think the way to think about it is just like the ways you think about putting on layers of protection. um, The more layers you put on, the lower the risk. So in terms of long COVID, the ways that you can limit uh, your probability of getting it includes, um, uh, you know, if you have a milder case, uh, you're less likely to get it. If you're up to date on vaccines and boosted, you're less likely to get it. Uh, If you are... um, um uh so if you if you're getting om- omicron flavor flavor versus the earlier variants you're less likely to get it but that doesn't mean that there are people who are vaccinated and uh who got omicron who don't get it uh it's just that it's a lower likely uh risk and what and that's really really uncomfortable because we have to take all these calculations and put it in our own perspective and think about what that means to us in our own situation. So for some people, it may mean not doing indoor dining until the virus gets to a certain level in the community, say, uh, much lower than what it is now. For other people, they might be willing to take that risk uh, or just roll the dice a little bit, um, you know, with that odds of, you know, the highest probably 1 in 20. Um, But again, not all of it will be really, really severe. That will last more than a year. So... I think uh everyone is seeing a little bit of the truth um but I think the probably the real answer is the the volume the gradation of scale between uh you know the, you're definitely going to get it or you're not going to get it.
1: There was new federal data. Thank you Stuart, by the way for that that question. There was new federal data from the National Center for Health Statistics that said Roughly 20 million people are currently living with long COVID symptoms. It just came out. And I am wondering, Dr. Chenong, if we have learned anything more about why some people get long COVID, how common it really is, since I know those results are self-reported.
2: Yeah, so those are all great questions. Um, First of all, um, I think we don't know a lot about long COVID. I have a lot of respect for people who have long COVID. I think one symptom that everybody's had who has long COVID who I've spoken to is not like necessary brain fog or palpitations or shortness of breath. It's stigma. And it's stigma on when they come to see their healthcare professional. It's stigma when they tell their neighbor they have chronic symptoms. And I think that can't be underestimated. Uh, So I have a lot of uh, respect for those who have it. Um, With that said, it's probably a variety of diseases. Um, It's probably in two main categories. One is that uh, it's an overactive immune system that needs to be tempered down, or there's archived virus uh, that may benefit from antivirals. There have been some early reports that some people with long COVID uh, you respond to Paxlovid, uh, but it's probably not everyone, and we need to understand more. And that's why the government is actually spending more than a billion dollars and others as well in efforts to do so, but the answers won't come immediately. Um, uh, And that's recovercovid.org. If you Google that and you have these chronic symptoms, it's probably a good place to be evaluated as well, to have community uh, and to be part of the effort to understand this really, really challenging, um, you know, conundrum that we're in. And the scope is just breathtaking, like you said, Mina. Um, Even if we think that the the 20% of people who might have chronic symptoms uh, of those, maybe even... 5% might have really debilitating that lasts for over a year that includes cognitive or brain fog. That's millions of people that probably would have their workforce and their lives uh, disrupted for some time. So we really need to address it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned stigma. There's even... on maybe a slightly lower level, but but I've heard people talk about feeling some sense of guilt or embarrassment that they've gotten COVID. <laughs> um, how? What would you say to people who are feeling these kinds of feelings and beating themselves up in this way?
2: Definitely not. I mean, I, mean, I, I see it in my colleagues all the time. I mean, we're in healthcare, right? And we're, you know, been the mass people that you see on billboards and stuff like that telling you <laughs> to be vaccinated. And then you get long COVID and you're like, While you're kind of like shifting your eyes away or wearing sunglasses and stuff like that. But the the point is, it's not a moral failure. Uh, We all have things to do. And I think really the case in point is really, um, you know, taking care of of parents or grandparents or kids who have had uh, COVID and there's nobody else to do that. And you're the one, there's only so much you can do in the face of a transmissible variant. So I I would say, you know, uh, definitely... Uh, know that it's, it's, it's not your failure. Uh, so many people have been so careful of gotten it. But at the same time, uh, if you're lucky enough not to have gotten it so far, uh, you know, still take as many risks as possible. Uh, and if you've gotten it before, try to not get it again by just using all the protections that you know how to use the best that you can while engaging in life as zestfully as you want to because we all should be doing that.
1: Dr. Peter Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist at UCSF Medical Center. And this listener writes, Does the CDC five-day quarantine guideline after a positive test still hold? After do you think, Dr. Chin Hong.
2: Hello, yes. Uh after a positive test, um, isolation for five days uh minimum still holds. Um It's not so in other countries, uh, but it still holds in the United States. Um, And the way you think about it is after day five, you can exit isolation if you have a negative test up to day 10. But after day 10, many experts recommend not testing anymore. Um, So that's the way to think about it. Uh, uh, Five days is the minimum. You can get out before day 10, but you need a negative test. After day 10, don't worry testing because we don't know what that positive test may mean unless you're in a situation like healthcare, like I am where I really have to make sure I'm negative before I go back to work.
1: Laura writes, and again, listeners, you can post online at Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum or by emailing forum at kqed.org. Some of you already posted before the show. Laura writes, at this point, is someone who has never vaxxed still potentially more likely to get a more severe infection and therefore be more infectious to others, even to those of us who have kept up. With the boosters, there are these questions with regards to the po- the risk posed by unvaccinated people, both to themselves and others.
2: Yes. Yeah, so for unvaccinated people, there's there are more tools out there now. Um, like um, maybe you didn't get the vaccine because you were afraid of or had a, a bad side effect or you aren't able to get it. You can get long-acting monoclonal antibodies, which are different. There are new types of vaccines um, that are not mrna One that has been recently FDA, you know, given the green light by the FDA uh, advisory board, but not the CDC, and that's Novavax. Very old-fashioned technique, very, very good vaccine. And then number three, if you do get infected, you can reduce the risk of transmission to others by just taking Paxlovid because your viral load will drop very, very rapidly between uh, in the first day or two. So again, different strokes for different folks now, and we are not necessarily one-size-fits-all anymore, and we can all still do lots of things to protect each other.
1: Is it this idea, though, of a milder virus, since it has fewer hospitalizations and relatively fewer deaths associated with it, does it mean it's also milder for the unvaccinated?
2: Not necessarily. Um, Mm. It depends on on a a whole host of other things, and I'll give you a case in point. In Hong Kong, for example, as everyone knows, um, they were not very vaccinated, um, surprisingly, and they had... Omicron BA2 and it decimated that uh, territory and they ran out of beds and morgues and uh, all of that stuff, body bags uh, all over the place. So again, Omicron can do bad things too uh, if it hits the right soil. But it's probably the older you are, uh, you know, the, the more severe it's going to occur in you.
1: Well, this listener, Bettina, tweets, it will be six months since my fourth shot when I plan to travel to Europe. I'm 61 years old and have not had COVID-19. Can I get another booster before going? So six months since fourth
2: shot. Um, so theoretically, uh, so if Bettina is 61 and she's had four shots um, uh she would not normally be eligible for getting an additional booster but she can definitely talk to her healthcare professional in case there are other um you know nuances that uh may make her eligible to get a fourth shot but in a biological and scientific sense if it's 6 months since your last shot um you know you can you certainly use a booster to top off your antibodies uh you wouldn't get more antibodies but you can kind of restore it to kind of give you the best defenses uh, if you're going to be traveling.
1: Mark in Oakland, thanks for waiting. Hi, Mark.
2: Yeah, was last month I was one of those
0: people who had symptoms, and it took me three at-home tests over two days before I showed positive. I'm wondering, since then I've read that if you swab the back of your throat in addition to your nasal passages for the at-home test, you are more likely to uh, detect the virus earlier. Is that true?
2: Mm, thanks, Mark. I love Mark's question. So, uh, in Omicron, what we know is that unlike the previous variants, the virus really loves these large airways, the back of your throat, and it kind of like it's, it's really set it, set up shop there, and it's replicating like crazy there. And then only after a while, it goes up to your nose. So if you're swabbing your nose, you can be really swabbing your nose till tomorrow. If the action is in your throat, you wouldn't be capturing it until enough time has elapsed. So some people have combined the throat and the nose in the same swab, and apart from the ick factor, and I probably have no ick factor anymore after being <laughs> in medicine for so long, um, you could you can certainly increase the yield. It's not official; nobody in the U.S. is going to tell you to officially do it. But I find it very interesting that in the UK, they actually recommend this and they have videos about it from the government. So if you Google UK uh, throat and nose swab uh, on YouTube, you can find instructions on how to do it. But it's not really rocket science. You basically just combine the two. I think it's a good alternative for people uh, who are worried that they actually might have COVID, don't want to go out and get a PCR test and don't want to wait three days with a bunch of other tests before finding out for sure.
1: We're talking with Dr. Peter Chen Hong of UCSF Medical Center, an infectious disease specialist about COVID and the latest developments around the virus. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've got a couple of questions about variants. This listener writes, when we hear of a new variant spreading fast somewhere in the world, we know we'll get here pretty soon. Have you heard of any variants of concern now? And then Catherine also writes, Eric Topol is one of the few talking about the possibility of a pan vaccine that is agnostic to variants. Is that in development or is that just a pipe dream? So any new variants? Could a pan vaccine get to it?
2: So <laughs> great, great, great questions. I love no, them. So know, the new... Listeners vi- are awesome. The... <laughs> the game of the you know, the world is really dominated by omicron right now and omicron's party of 5 that i call them so ba1 which has kind of gone off now ba2 and its sibling ba2.12.1 which is mainly a us and uk thing and then the new kids on the block ba4 and ba5 started off in south africa moved to europe particularly portugal where it kind of exploded and then it's coming to the us canada and other parts of the world right now it's going to be the latest threat but nothing really else on the on the world scene so far because these variants are so great at transmission that they're keeping everyone, uh, all the other mutations that are occurring naturally every two weeks, we're getting a new m- mutation at bay, and and we've seen that before in the days of Lambda and Mu, if you remember, people were worried about those, but uh, during that time we had Delta kind of keeping them at bay. It's the same thing that's happening now with with these Omicron flavors. Um, in terms of um, the other question, which is the, the future of vaccines, I think it's a medium-term goal. I wouldn't even say long-term, medium, hopefully, where we may get um, you know uh, uh, what's called a universal uh, COVID vaccine or coronavirus vaccine. And so far, we've been banking on the spike protein um, uh, because the antibodies we make and the immune response we make towards it uh, seems to really protect well. But as the spike protein changes with the new variants, uh, it doesn't really protect well against just infection, uh, although it protects against going to the hospital. So I think people are trying to work on using or incorporating into the vaccine parts of the virus that don't change, that are similar all the time. But those parts are hard to see. So that's why it's taking a longer time to um, you know, develop a vaccine that's this a uh, pan coronavirus vaccine, but if developed, would be amazing because it will help against just not just COVID, but other th- viruses that may cause colds, uh, etc. and and the other um, SARS-like viruses, like the Middle Eastern uh, camel disease MERS and the original SARS, and maybe future SARS as well.
1: Well, Cynthia writes, Evushield is one tool to prevent COVID among the immunocompromised. Could Dr. Chinon comment on whether that is still effective for the new variants?
2: Um, that's a great question. So far, the data suggests that Evushield is still effective against uh, BA4 and BA5. Um, but it, but the listeners right. We can't take it for granted that these monoclonal antibodies are going to be effective every time a new variant comes on board because they're pre made, um, and it's kind of like a lock and a key. If you, if the key doesn't fit in the lock, uh, which is the antibodies and the new variant, the spike protein, uh, then it's not going to work uh, because it's somebody else's some antibodies made in a factory. But it turns out that that shell still has activity against BA4 and BA5, luckily.
1: Mm. Well. It's been over a year since California basically reopened, right? I think it was June fifteenth. We are in a better place, right, Dr. Chin Hong, <laughs> even with what feels like everybody around us getting COVID.
2: Oh yeah, totally. I mean, if we were back in a year ago and we had this amount of virus in the community, we would be swarming in the hospitals. We won't be able to take care of anybody else. Um there'll be mobile hospitals in Golden Gate Park. Um you know, I think we're in such in a different place now because of the power of vaccines and boosting. The Bay Area has the highest uptake of vaccines across all age groups in the country. If you think of kids 5 to 11, for example, national statistics, 30 percent, Bay Area over 60 percent. If you looked at adolescents, we're more than 90 percent. So, again, it really pr- is protecting our hospital, keeping people from getting uh, very ill. But that's not to talk about some of the other things that we are seeing with the disruptions and i think the lingering uh you know ache of this thing still being with us after all this time
1: well dr Hong, so appreciate again you coming on to answer our listeners questions and to share your experiences and insights
2: my pleasure mina thanks so much for having me on
1: Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Infectious Disease Specialist of UCSF Medical Center. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segments, and my thanks, as always, to our listeners for their great great questions and sharing their experiences. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED
4: Wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network.
0: Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
3: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country